The Wiser Podcast, conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Siswem Bofu-Walsh, and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. Dr. Tinashe Mushakavanu is a postdoctoral fellow at Wiser. His latest book, Reincarnating Marchera, is due in July 2020 from Ugly Duckling Press in New York. In this podcast, released on what would have been Marchera's 68th birthday, featuring rare clips of Marchera's own voice and letters to Marchera after his death, Mushakavanu pays tribute to and converses with author Dambuzo Marchera. I like to write the kind of thing which, which destroys things people take for granted. Because I think original thinking can only come uh, when we have discarded uh, the, the idea of taking anything for granted. Um, in that sense, that's why, for instance, um, uh, I usually attack people's ideas of morality, um, precisely because um, morality is one of the things taken for granted by the majority of citizens, that this is not done, that this is not permissible, this is impossible, this is not done. Um, and um, I try to write in such a way that I short-circuit, you know, like in electricity, I short-circuit people's uh, traditions and morals. Mm-hmm. Because once you've done that, only then can they start having um, original thoughts of their own. And uh, in a sense, uh, stop thinking in a, cons- in a, a sort of constitutional, or in, I would like people to stop thinking in an institutionalized way. Then if they stop thinking like that and they look in the mirror, they'll see how beautiful they are and all those impossibilities within themselves, emotionally and intellectually. Uh, That's why, you know, most of what I've written is always seen as being disruptive or destructive. Um, For me, that slow brain death I was talking about can only be cured by uh, this kind of um, uh, literary shock treatment. Zimbabwean writer Dambuzo Marichera became an instant star with the publication of his first book, The House of Hunger, published to critical acclaim in 1978. He wrote the book while living in a tent or squat, but then perhaps he did not. For as James Carey puts it in Africa Rights Back, the African Writers Series, and the launch of African literature. Marichera developed his own life story with the self-regarding obsession of an actor. Everything to do with him had a touch of mythology, whether it was throwing plates and cups to his hosts at the Guardian Fiction Prize ceremony, or traveling without a passport between countries and continents, or the persistent fiction of his permanent homelessness. After a decade of confounding critiques and falls and leading an erratic lifestyle, he was dead at 35. I want to read his death as a moment of radical praxis in the Zimbabwean imaginary. But who is Dambuza Marichera? I never met him. He died when I was four years old and has always been an enigma. I recently discovered a set of old letters sent to the Marichera Trust between 1987 and 1992. They are deposited at the National Archives of Zimbabwe. These letters foreground the subjectivity in Marichela's conflicted legacy. 
Marichela's own person embodies celebrity in politics, spectacle and radicalism, universality and self-aggrandizement. What endears him to a generation of readers is his refusal to offer his answers or present static identities for his fictional characters. E.M., one of the Marichela fans, wrote, Dambuzo Marichela Trust, Three Toil Don't Spoil Avenue, Soothe Me Don't Suit Township, P.O. Revelation, Redemption. Dambuzo is our prophet. I pray to him. I mean that I'm continuing from where he left off. So far, I've compiled four of my books. House of Sorrow, Toil Don't Spoil, Threats Will Not Stop Us, and Take Courage. I'm writing because African Africans must be free. I'm Bantu. My God is black. God is a living man. A man who says God is in the sky is a spy. Dambuza Marichara is not dead. Men shall not prosper if they suspect and never respect our prophet Dambuzo. For a long time, I associated the National Archives of Zimbabwe with the bureaucracy of government and viewed it as, a, as an unwelcoming security zone. My early visits were all focused on accessing the Marichera papers or what remains of them. The more I kept visiting and requesting materials, the more items went missing. When I told friends about the appearance, disappearance, and reappearance of materials, many suggested that the institution has a general suspicion of researchers and censures information. It was in one of these visits that I first saw a pink folder labeled MS901 that the real import of Marichera's influence revealed itself. The folder contained a pile of hundreds of handwritten letters neatly pressed together. My researcher's instinct to take notes was forgotten. Their melodramatic structure and rhetoric disturbed the stable meanings I held. It is precisely the melodramatic attributes and intimate details of these letters, with the expressions of psychic pain, longing, desire, frustration, boredom, and the material details of the correspondent's private lives that now make them irresistible, intimate public archives. These letters are valuable historic documents and are deeply effective. Their inclusion in the National Archives of Zimbabwe was a fate that their writers could never have imagined. But the effective and historical value of these letters also depends on their continued circulation. Yet, they have been ignored by researchers who have hollowed out black testimony in constructing the figure of Marichera. Marichera's scholarship is scaffolded on white memory. These letters now function as a space of knowledge and confession and are complex objects positioned at the intersection of personal institutional and memorial motives. Addressed in care of the Dambuzo Marichara Trust, the letters were dispatched from urban townships, rural areas, growth points, mining compounds, farms, from far-flung places, places that only appear in the news during election season or moments of catastrophe. In death, Marichara ruptures the small view of Zimbabwe often restricted to a little corridor that starts in Harare and ends in Bulawayo. These letters provide a unique psychological and physical map 
of Marichara's enduring influence, a community of interest forged around issues of privacy, of friendship, and of individual freedom. Marichara refuses to be fixed to a single location. Through these letters, he's in constant movement from place to place and becomes an eternal source for creating freedom. The letters all seem directed to Marichara himself. The correspondents feel comfortable talking to him. They know he will never scold them for what they have to say. He understands. Marichara is an ordinary person like them who is constantly harassed by the state and its security apparatus. Through this private correspondence, the writers share their frustrations with, with government. Most of them are school dropouts who absconded to join the war and came back to no jobs or unwelcoming families. These children liberated Zimbabwe. They dream children, as Yvonne Vera called them. After the war, they were expected to grow up quickly and join the army of nation builders. There were no systems created to deal with the traumas of war. A lot of young people returned from the war suffering from post-traumatic disorders. They had stories and nightmares and didn't know how to share them or where to turn for help. The government bureaucrats were unconcerned. Marichera decided to be the story doctor who provided an outlet for people to vent their pent-up emotions. He opened a small office in the Rai City Center. The office was minimalistic. It had no furniture. There was a phone in the corner. Marichera decided to build a healing platform outside the official system. He understood the sickness that was around him that could only be cured through storytelling. The writing surgery operated for four days before it was shut down by government agents. At least 1,000 young people consulted Marichera. They turned to him, who they knew as the resident philosopher, in Harari's nightclubs and bars. They eagerly identified with his iconoclasm. To them, his was a fearless voice that undermined every kind of complacency and hypocrisy. After his death, there's a level of confidence bestowed to the guardians of the Dambuza Marichera Trust, who are seen as a direct link to Marichera. As intermediaries, they assumed to have direct access to the writer and expected to pass his messages and in return relay Marichara's responses. X wrote, Listen, I had the nerve to write straight to you since you seem to be the only person who knows about Dambuzo. Oops, I don't like to repeat calling his name. But believe me, his voice haunts me day and night. It sounds he wants me to finish his work that he didn't manage to before. Hang on, I'm coming. These thoughts are pouncing on me savagely. The Dambuzo Maricha Trust, Post Office Box, A595, Avondo, Harare, Zimbabwe. The Post Office Box replaced Dambuzo Marichera, and in this form, he became a site of consciousness and a place of memory making. Avondale Post Office is a catalyst in the reconfiguration of Marichara's new post-death identity. Before the COVID-19 pandemic halted travel and forced the closure of international borders, I made a quick trip to Harare. I wanted to visit the old Avondale Post Office, but to my dismay it has since been demolished. 
In its place is a popular chicken grill. The postmaster now occupies a back room in the new complex, even though there is a, there is a confidential aspect to letter writing, which makes it a perfect medium to communicate dissent and defiance. There is still a level of paranoia that persists. Some of the letters are signed anonymously. The letter writers fear interception by government. These anxieties around surveillance or the limited freedoms out of freedom of expression characterized Zimbabwe in the 1980s and provoked concern about the dissemination of private information. The letters, notwithstanding the climate of fear, become a mode of self-analysis and provide psychological and political insights of the times. E.M. wrote, Never before have I encountered an author so seriously dedicated to his pen and voice as the late Nambuzo desperate Marichara. He remains my luminary in my poetic endeavor. His courageous denunciation of filthy-faced citizens and undying inspiration to me. These are the bigots now coming to the foreground, dead and alive because of their sins who kept Dambuza well underfoot till his death. Gigi wrote, As you know, that after the death of Dambuza Marichera, being the origin or originator of modern custom of true freedom of the mind, encouraging many young writers to burst out through the flames of writing spirits, most people were left sickened, lonely and pained by the sickness, disappearance and death of Marichera. I found out that Marichara freedom of the mind speech is a tradition to follow. From the perspective of the speculative enterprise, Marichara's death was a necessary death, a death that is had movement, a death that created an unprecedented schism in the Zimbabwean imagination. For the political class, it was good riddance. But for the multitudes of young people, Marichara's death was the awakening. It was a new type of death, that refused to be killed, a death which served meaning. Marichera's transcendence to the afterlife became an expression of the radical new logic, a speculative process. His death is the moment he is born again. Every utterance of his name is a recreation of who he was, or who he should have been. He changes with every memory, every telling. If Dambuza Marichera had not existed, Zimbabwe would have invented him. In many ways, there, there, there isn't really a future for Zimbabwean uh, literature. If it's going to be officially defined, I think it will simply die away. I mean, people will, will just stop writing. Um, uh, um, I mean, if uh, the government uh, actually prescribes what people should write, I think people will just stop writing. Um, but if the government realizes like most intelligent governments, if the government realizes that there must always be a healthy tension between the writer and his society, the writer and his nation, um, uh, then we have a tremendous future. Because, you see, even though we fought the same revolution altogether, all these people in this city, um, uh, who are, of course, on our side, uh, I mean, they're on the revolution side, um, even though we all fought on the one side, we... we, we we do not have one particular view. And so if uh, criticism, um, whenever it is, it doesn't actually take up guns, if criticism is allowed, if that healthy tension between minds which generates a particular idea, if argument is allowed, if every writer 
is actually helped to not only discover his vision and talent, but also to fashion it out in such a way that he re-evaluates himself and at the same time achieves national uh, recognition and international recognition. Then, yeah, there is a tremendous future. Um, that's why, for instance, um, I usually, in a, in a childish way, um, I usually simply protest that, look, you guys, I mean, like when they arrested me, I may said, look, you guys, I'm just a writer. I'm not I'm, uh, I'm, uh, carrying guns against you. Why don't you just leave me alone to write my books in any way I want? Um, uh, a, a pen is not a gun. A gun will actually kill somebody. But a pen can stimulate thoughts. 